It's my great privilege this evening to introduce Kevin Swanson and his wife Brenda. Uh, Kevin is a you were a mechanical engineer, right? Okay. Right. Uh huh. And a uh, uh, historian. You like history. Uh -huh. I so do. I think most of us here like history. Yeah. And um, yeah, and also um, you've done a lot of work in homeschooling. Yes, I think that's both, right. Both so right. and she um, did most of it. Yes, <laughs> the woman normally did. <laughs> My wife also has done homeschooling with our, our boys, so we, and I think it's wonderful. I think homeschooling is a great way to avoid all the uh, secular propaganda and all the evolutionary garbage, you know, that we come from mud to monkeys to me and all that sort of thing. Uh, no, we created in the image of Almighty God, and so homeschooling is a is a wonderful way to go. Yes. So, um, yeah, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you. It's thank uh, you. great that you can come. And um, yeah, without further ado, I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your hospitality, good food tonight. It's uh, just a blessing to be here. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Shall we do that? Let's pray. Our Father, God in heaven, we Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, that you have brought a great Redeemer to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has set the captives free and has brought a legacy of liberty to the entire world. Father, we thank you that you have turned on the lights, you've brought the truth, and you've brought freedom to this, to this world. And uh, we thank you, Father, that Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, and he rules as King of kings and Lord of lords, even tonight, over all the nations of this world. And one day he will bring all righteousness to fruition, to consummation. And, and we know that he has already won the battle, and he is winning, and he will win. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Just to introduce myself a little bit to everybody, we're from the state of Colorado, which is roughly 10,000 miles away from here. Um, takes about 25 hours to get there. Um, but you're certainly welcome to come to our house at any time. We, we like to invite our friends from around the world to come visit us out on the eastern plains of Colorado. We've lived there for about 30 years and we've raised our children there. I was raised on the mission field in Japan. My parents homeschooled us in the 1960s and 1970s and uh, eventually we got married in 1990 and we've been homeschooling our five children and now several are married. We have six grandchildren and the legacy just continues. Uh, it's a, a blessing that God has brought homeschooling to the world for such a time as this. We have the privilege of traveling the world and been to about 20 different countries introducing home education or family discipleship all around the world and there are families everywhere who want to break free from the socialist schools. Uh, socialism pretty much dominates education today. Governments control the schools and they control the minds and souls of the next generation. That's the means by which uh, they have gathered uh, control over the nations. But God has also raised up the opportunity for parents to engage with their children, to disciple their own children, to take responsibility for their children's education. And that has resulted in uh, millions upon millions of children now being homeschooled, something that was not happening in the 1960s and 1970s. I do truly believe that if there's any good news in the world today, well, first of all, Jesus has come. He's setting the captives free, saving people from their sins all over the world. But he's also enabling families to break free from the government schools 
and that's happening everywhere. We were at the first Brazilian homeschool conference in Brasilia last September, 3,000 parents attended, and I've been invited back to speak again. 4,000 parents are attending, are planning to attend the conference in September of this year. So we're looking at about 50,000 homeschoolers in the nation of Brazil. There are some nations around the world where I think there is a chance uh, of the revival of the Christian faith and uh, the possibility of the restoration of freedom somewhere around the world today. Uh, most likely will not happen in Europe, it will happen in America, but it might happen in Brazil, South Africa, or some other place around the world. Uh, America has exported its bad ideologies into the schools, the universities around the world. We apologize for anything that we brought into this nation. Sorry, I, I come as the official representative of my country to ask for your forgiveness for everything we've done, all the bad things we've brought into Africa. But, uh, but I do think that right now the battle for the heart of Africa is occurring, and most of it is probably happening right here in this country today. South Africa is truly the battleground. So may God give you the strength, the faith, the courage, the truth, the right worldview to engage the battle and be faithful uh, in, in the battle that he has placed before you. And I do want to encourage you with some things tonight. Uh, I wrote a book called The Story of Freedom. I don't have any copies of my books, uh, but they're supposed to be coming on a, on a pallet over the next couple of weeks. So maybe they'll be available in the bookstore here at Christian Liberty. But, uh, but I wrote a book called The Story of Freedom. I think it is the most exciting, most interesting story of the last several thousand years, really since Jesus came, because by God's grace, liberty was salvaged somewhere in the world. The default for the nations around the world, whether it be China, or whether it be the, the, the tribes that are ruled by local dictators, uh, petty tyrants, or what have you, the, the default position of every nation around the world is tyranny. And, and evil that is brought down upon the masses uh, by their political leaders. This has been the default position over a period of 6,000 years until Jesus came. And Jesus came and interrupted all of that. Uh, praise God, uh, we see a, a tremendous blessing that comes uh, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the key moments in history, the most dramatic Moments in history are typically when God sets his people free. And certainly the most dramatic moment in all of the Old Testament history occurred at the Red Sea. I think this is the symbolic, the quintessential symbolic representation of the great scenario of a problem and a solution that God brings to the world. And the bottom line is when something significant happens, when something very good happens, it's because God came down and God intervened, and God brought about an amazing salvation to the world. It would not have happened without God's hand. And the Red Sea is certainly uh, an illustration of that. God's people enslaved for 400 years by the most powerful empire on earth. That was the Egyptian empire. No way out. They had no armaments. They had no way to defend themselves. And uh, God came down, of course, brought the ten plagues upon Egypt, and really in the process, uh, made the Egyptians really mad. And so the Pharaoh had a hard heart, and his heart was harder than ever before, and he was more angry than he could ever be, and then of course God brought the final plague in which he destroyed the firstborn in Egypt. So at this point, you have the most angry possible leader coming down upon God's people, who had just been set free, but there they were by the Red Sea. 
The mountain on the right, mountain on the left, there's no way that they could have extricated themselves from the situation. They were about to be annihilated by the largest army of the largest empire on planet Earth. And Moses, in faith, raises the rock. And God separated the waters, delivered his people, and then himself annihilated the largest army on planet Earth. Praise God. Amen? Amen. God brings about an amazing redemption. And that's the story of liberty. That's the story of what God did through Jesus Christ at the cross. There it was that he set us free, redeemed us from the power of Satan, the power of sin, and, and overcame the fear of death, the prospect of death for us, and guaranteed for us an eternal salvation. So praise be to God. Um, 40 years later, you know, the Canaanite kings were begging for help from the Pharaoh. Did you know that? There's the Marna tablets that that uh, are, have been un uncovered. And here there are multiple Canaanite kings that were sending messages down to the Pharaoh from places like Jerusalem and uh, other places throughout Canaan asking for help to deliver these Canaanite tribes from a people called the Haberu. Well, I wonder who the Haberu are. The Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites. The Haberu were coming down and they were invading Canaan, so these Canaanite kings sent these Amarna tablets down uh, to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, of course, couldn't do anything about it. Why? Because his, uh, the, the back of his empire had been broken at the Red Sea. And here Egypt was at the height of its power, and uh, God destroyed that mighty empire and set his people free. Now, this, this is our story. This is the story of our lives, brothers and sisters. When things have never been so bad, something good happens. When we come down to our last possible situation where there's absolutely no human means by which we could see ourselves delivered from these conditions, God intervenes and God does his work. When we're in the nightmare of our sin and misery, corruption, degradation, humiliation, condemnation, with the specter of eternal death hanging over us, Christ died for us. That's the story of our redemption. This is the story of our salvation. Praise be to God. So it plays out in the individual life, but I think it also plays out in terms of the church as well, the corporate body of the church and the corporate body of nations. So let's talk about political tyranny for just a moment. I think we all understand what it is to be in bondage, to be in handcuffs, unable to set ourselves free from the bondage of sin. Uh, we've come into contact with people who had addictions to drugs and alcohol. I work with uh, young men that are struggling with uh, pornography or drugs, alcohol, these sorts of things, and they get into a condition of bondage where they just simply cannot extricate themselves where they have to sin. They, they cannot pull themselves out of this horrible condition that is destroying them, destroying their relationships, destroying their family, but, uh, but when Jesus comes, he set the captives free. That's what he does. We're so thankful for that. Well, political tyranny is something similar to that. The 20th century is perhaps the most horrible century that we've experienced in at least a thousand years. 
It was the humanist century. What does that mean? It means that we had a man-centered ideology that really kicked in. That really came through the 19th century philosophers. I wrote a book called Apostate, The Men Who Destroyed the Christian West, just so you know, we could all assign blame to the utter destruction that's come upon human civilization in the last 100 years. We're, we're, we're looking at a breakdown of human civilization. And, and the bottom line is that this came about through man-centered ideologies, man-centered thinking. And uh, it also brought a tremendous tyranny. When you turn government into God, when you turn man into God, he turns himself into a horrible God. Um, and he does untoward, terrible, terrible things to himself and, and to others. So the humanist century is a century that was godless. It involved a great deal of torture, fear-mongering, the sovereignty of the state, the, the rise of the humanist state. You know, throughout history, there, there have been tyrannies. But I did a little you know, research myself and, and found that never have governments taken so much of the people's income as they do today. The average nation is, is giving up 40, 50, 60% of the gross national income to taxation or to government systems. And those government systems, of course, are you know, controlling us. That is about half, between half and 70% of the economy, that parts of our lives are consumed by governments today. Under the most tyrannical Roman government, during the Roman Empire of the first century or two, uh, they never took more than about four to six percent of the people's income. So what we're dealing with now are tyrannies that are ten times worse than anything we've ever experienced in the history of mankind. I think we need to understand that. We have highly technical tyranny, we have highly intrusive tyranny, we have systems, organized systems that are able to track every part of our lives. That, that didn't exist. We didn't have the technology, we didn't have the means of collecting taxes, we didn't have the, uh, the, the control of people uh, in centuries past that have been developed in just the last hundred years. Now, I guess it's important for us to understand these things. That's why I bring it out in my books as much as I do. The Story of Freedom and uh, Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West, and the, um, the Story of Apostate, The Men Who Destroyed the Christian West. I think it's important for us to understand where we are today. You know, that we are, in some respects, the frogs in the slowly boiling water where the water has gone up about a degree centigrade a year over a period of 100 years, and now we're approaching 99.9 .9 degrees centigrade, and the frogs are thinking, maybe it's a little warm in here. But, but we don't really you know, understand what's going on unless you back up and look at uh, 2,000 years of world history and determine that you know, this is the most tyrannical time in all of human history. There's hardly a nation in the world that is free of this kind of tyranny. Tyranny that's creeped into the point at which it's controlling every part of our children's education, our children's health care, uh, the welfare systems, et cetera, et cetera. These are far more intrusive tyrannies than we've ever seen in the history of mankind. And so I think we need to understand that we ourselves are facing uh, some very severe levels of human tyranny that are imposed on us by human governments. Um, the COVID tyrannies, I think, was just a shot across the bow. Approved national governments what they could do with uh, very little resistance. That is, almost nobody resisted uh, the kind of heavy strictures placed upon the people. I think Australia and New Zealand was some of the more shocking examples. Uh, we interviewed folks on our radio program who were under such intense scrutiny and control. Uh, 
in Australia and New Zealand, but the same thing was happening in our country as well. Very little opposition uh, to tyranny. I ran for governor of the state of Colorado in 1994, and I was the pro-life candidate. The other candidates for running were in favor of killing babies and getting more government funding to, to kill as many babies as possible. And so I ran as the pro-life candidate. At that time, uh, Dr. James Dobson was uh, part of Focus on the Family, and he was uh, encouraging people to vote pro-life. And yet there was nobody for James Dobson to vote for in the state of Colorado. And uh, there was nobody for me to vote for in the state of Colorado, at least for the office of governor. So I ran for the, for the office of governor, and I was concerned about abortion. I made that a very fundamental part of my platform. Uh, but I also was concerned about the gradual increase of government control and government funding over and I, I show these charts you know and and show that you know we're taking four six maybe eight percent of the gross national income uh, 60 70 years earlier but now governments are are soaking us for anywhere between 40 and 60 percent of the gross national income pointing out that governments are much more tyrannical than they've ever been but most most people didn't care one little bit about that. This has absolutely no concern whatsoever. And I would refer to Samuel Adams' famous quote. He's one of the founders of our nation. We had two Christian founders of our nation with possibly a third uh, in the uh, first decade or two of, this, of our nation's beginnings in 1776. Uh, the two founders were Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry. They were born-again, godly Christian men. George Washington might have been as well, but the rest of them were pretty much deists and Unitarians. They were a Christian apostasy. Sadly, apostasy had really raised its ugly head thanks to the French Revolution's influence upon America in the 1770s, 1780s. But by God's grace, Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry were the most important, most significant, uh, most Christian leaders of our nation. We would not have our Bill of Rights had it not been for Samuel Adams up in uh, Massachusetts fighting for it, and uh, uh, Pat, Patrick Henry down in Virginia. So these are the two key players that brought about, actually our war for independence and our ultimate independence uh, would never have happened without those two key, key uh, men. The others it showed up later, but uh, when it came to our Bill of Rights that was fought for in 1789, it was Patrick Henry and Sammy Adams that pulled it off. It, otherwise, we would never have it. We would never have any of our freedoms in our nation today. Uh, we would all be in gulags and prison camps. Uh, tyrants would have, by now, shut down every church in America had it not been for the Bill of Rights. Uh, so it was Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams. Uh, again, one of the examples I want to make tonight is that uh, one of the lessons I want to draw from history tonight is that really it only takes one or two people to really make a difference in any given nation. Ultimately, in terms of leadership, it doesn't take very many. It just takes one or two uh, leaders that are committed to the cause. And that's the way it was with Samuel Adams. But I would quote Samuel Adams when I ran for governor. If you love wealth more than liberty, the tranquility of servitude, better than the animating contest of freedom, depart from us in peace. We ask not your counsel nor your arms. May your chains rest lightly upon you, and may your posterity forget that you are a countryman. So that was the sort of thing that, you know, our leaders would say, that's what they believed. Some of these early founders of America really did love liberty. They, they had it running in their bloodstream. You know, they, they really didn't like the chains. They didn't really want to kiss the chains that bound them. But that's the way most people are. I'm just, I'm just saying, most people love their chains. 
They love their sin and they love tyranny and they embrace tyranny and they vote for it. The reason why almost every nation in the world today is tyrannized is because people vote for it. They love tyranny. They don't want to be made free. Now we're gonna talk about this later, but Jesus said, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. So we're gonna talk about that in just a, a bit. But the bottom line is that a tyranny is descending upon our nations. And there's one more thing about tyranny I think you need to understand. Tyranny is destructive. Now I'm guessing some of you in South Africa, well, your lights have been out quite a bit, I noticed, since I've come. I, it's the oddest thing in the world. I, I, I took some pictures of some of the stoplights. I thought, this is really funny. You know, it's kind of, it's the, uh, you know, you can still have your electricity on. What's the deal with that? Um, isn't that a developed nation? I didn't think this was a third world nation. You know, I, thought, I thought this was a first world nation. I thought you guys had a few dollars and you had some technology and you had, actually have worked on that for a few years, but you can't even keep your lights on. What's wrong with that? But the reason is that tyranny is all about destruction. I think you, we all need to come face to face with this reality. Tyranny, its intent is to destroy. Why? Because Jesus said, that the enemy has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this is specifically what tyrants do. They steal, they kill, and they destroy. I think we do need to come face to face with this. The purpose of Satan and the purpose of all tyrants is to destroy. Karl Marx himself associated himself with Apollyon. This was the character that he most identified with. I draw this out in my book, Apostate, The Men Who Destroyed the Christian West. You do need to understand the, the ideologies, the lifestyles and such of these great men, these powerful men that have so much influence upon our world. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. And I do believe that uh, we can understand a little more about Karl Marx if we read his biography. And that's why we do so much on biographies. Because you need to understand that Karl Marx identified himself with Apollyon. And Apollyon, the word Apollyon, is a word that means the destroyer. It's to destroy. So his commitment, in fact, he himself said, I am the destroyer, these words, I am the destroyer. In some of his prose, he would, he would say, refer to himself as Apollyon, and then say that he has come to destroy and to destroy the world. So that, that is the agenda of the communists. And that's the agenda of Karl Marx. It's to destroy. They may pretend like they're redistributing wealth and a few other things, but that is their ultimate agenda, that's their heart, that's what they believe, that's what they're committed to. So, and that's precisely what's happening around the world today. That's why I wrote the book, The Rise and Fall of the West. Because I do believe that the Western world has fallen, that Western civilization is no more effectively. There's a little bit of remnant, we have just enough debt money to pay for our psychotropic drugs. That's the way I like to put it. We, well, our, our nation is utterly insane. We have gone insane. My wife has said this to me before, most recently, we live in an insane asylum. I don't know if South Africa is as insane as we are, but God has given them up to a perverted mind, Romans 1. This is where we are today in our country. It's just an insane asylum, it's insanity. Um, little boys are turning themselves into little girls, little girls and little boys and surgeries and they're paid for by the state. Just craziness, utter craziness has totally enveloped our nation. But, but that's because our civilization is no more. Uh, Western civilization is dead. And uh, two things are happening simultaneously. One is 
our civilizations are coming apart. The second thing is that Christian influence in the Western world was removed uh, in our country in the year 2008. So that was the end of, of a, a thousand years, well, closer to 2,000 years of Western civilization ended in 2008, and make that point in epoch, the rise and fall of the West. It is over. Western civilization is over because the Christian influence in the Western world completely dissolved in the year 2008. We have no more influence upon our institutions today uh, as we did for the previous 1,500 years of, of Western history. So the end result has been the, the breakdown of economies, the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of society, sexuality. These are the sorts of things that are destroyed. And we're going to talk about the islands at the, at the end. I'm going to give you a little hope here. We're, we're building the islands. We're building islands of culture, islands of freedom, and islands of education. That's what we're doing. We're, we're hardcore building islands. Uh, in our country and other countries around the world. So these beautiful islands, God has given us an opportunity to build islands, but at this point we cannot retake the mainland. We can only build the islands. So the hope is that uh, we have opportunities to rebuild, but right now we're only re rebuilding the islands. Okay, a very important point that I make in the story of freedom. So we're losing our liberties. Talk about that. Governments exceed 50% of the gross national income. Uh, crisis is the context for socialism. And one of the most important freedoms, of course, is the right to life, the freedom to live, and not have that life taken from you by government fiat, government funding, government encouragement, um, or uh, by the allowance of government to, to do this. And governments in our country uh, fund abortion, and they have, they have encouraged the, the slaughter of 80 million babies, at least, since 1960. So... So this is, I, I believe, a fundamental breakdown of human freedom or liberty, uh, especially on the part of the civil master, on the part of governments. So governments are killing babies, and they're using government funding to do it. Uh, increasingly, they're using government funding for abortion and for abortifacients or con conception control that have abortifacient qualities. And so if a government would kill 80 million babies, here's my question. Why won't that government kill you? That's all I'm asking. If, if, if a government runs out and kills 80 million babies, why won't that government kill all of the Christians in that society? I wonder sometimes if we aren't very close to that kind of thing happening. I'm not sure that, that the average peoples, like there are Armenians living in 1910, roughly, in Armenia, I'm not sure they were ready for a genocide. Do you think they were? I'm just throwing that out. Do you think, think they were saying, I think we're gonna have a genocide in, in five years, let's move. You think the average Armenian was saying that in 1908? No, no, it comes quickly upon them, you know? Suddenly it just all breaks out Rwanda. Wasn't there a genocide in Rwanda? I'm trying to think of the genocides that occurred in the 20th century. Do you think everybody was thinking five years before it happened, I think there's gonna be a genocide. And I think maybe four, five, six million of us are gonna be slaughtered on the streets, blood shed everywhere. I don't think people think that way. But I will say that I think as God's people, we need to wake up to these realities. That when, when you have a society, when you have governments that have opened the floodgates to the slaughter of 80 million babies, are you next? 
And I think we all need to take these things seriously. We need to consider these things, brothers and sisters. Again, two phenomena happening side by side. First, the removal of Christian culture, Christian influence, salt and light. Salt very much in our Christian churches have lost their savor, but they certainly don't have much influence upon the culture, the wider culture anymore. But we also see a decrease in or a breakdown of our civilizations. But here's the third thing that's happening. Let me give you one more thing that's happening simultaneously to these other things, and that is a rise in Christian persecution around the world. So this is one thing we report on a regular basis on theworldview.com. It's called theworldview.com. It's a five-minute news update that we bring from a Christian perspective every day. We've been doing it for uh, nine years, and it's a five-minute update. It's very simple. We add two Bible verses so that you're not discouraged. You're reminded that God is in control, you know, and uh, you, we siphon these things through a biblical perspective. So I encourage you to sign up for that. You can do it with your smartphone so you have an, an update each and every day. It's called theworldview.com. But we are facing the greatest persecutions uh, since about 300 AD. So arguably, you know, some of the things that happened to Huguenots and others in the 16th century might have been as significant what we're dealing with today, but I'm not sure. As I study history, I, I'm beginning to think that in terms of just the extent of, of persecutions that are affecting Christian churches around the world, uh, we are competing with the first few centuries of the church. So again, it appears that there is a great deal of, of pressure against Christians around the world. Think about what's happening in India. Just, just a lot of imprisonments, a lot of slaughter, a lot of martyrdoms are happening in northern India and uh, northeastern India uh, just over the last several months. These are significant. We haven't seen that in, in centuries in that area of the world. So these are huge persecutions that are happening. Well, let's, let's defend liberty. Let's, let's describe it. Let's defend it uh, from a biblical perspective. I want to talk about liberty. I want to defend the idea. I, I want to commit ourselves to it. I think we should be committed to liberty. I think we should love liberty, embrace it like this is a good concept. Uh, maybe it's a lost concept to a great deal of the population in South Africa or other places around the world. Um, I asked Peter Hammond and uh, Gregor Pereira, you know, the guys that invited me out to South Africa, do South Africans appreciate freedom? You know, I was wondering, is there anybody in South Africa that likes to be free? And they were enthusiastic. Oh, yeah. They said, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who like freedom in South Africa today. And uh, again, I, my encouragement to you all is, is to embrace a biblical definition of it. Realize that God is committed to this and we should be as well. And then uh, I want to challenge us all to engage uh, the battle for, for liberty. Um, the biblical definition of liberty is obedience to God's law. That's effectively it. Uh, liberty is to be free from sin. That's, that's fundamental. Ultimate slavery is slavery to sin. And governments and institutions enslave when they, they themselves are violating God's law on a wholesale level, and then the effects of that are, are hurting others involved in the same institutions. God's law limits power. It sets the boundaries of jurisdictional authorities. That is, God is in control of who gets what power. 
So he's established the institutions of family, church, and state, and he has laid out the boundaries of those jurisdictions. Now, the average person today thinks in terms of, okay, this is government. Think about who's in charge. Most people today, I think, will tell you that governments are in charge. So government is everything. Government is over everything. And then you have the church and the family and the individual that or businesses are allowed by the state to do what the state has permitted these various institutions to do. Does that make sense? That's the way most people view it, is the state is God. The state is everything. The state is the source of all authority. And these other spheres are allowed to function within the framework of the state. We say, no, 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 the state is not God. God is God. God is the source of all authority, and we submit to that. And we, and we say that God has established the family, the church, the state as, as institutions. Why should you submit to the government? Because God instituted government. Why should we submit to the authority of the church? Because God has instituted the church. Why should children submit themselves to the authority of mothers and fathers? Because God has instituted that. He's placed the father and the mother as authorities, and he has said in his word, honor your father and your mother. He's, he's encouraged children to submit to their fathers and mothers because he's the one who is the source of all authority has laid out those boundaries. Now, the, the family can't do whatever the family wants to do. Uh, the father cannot just beat his child you know, up and all this. You can't do that because God has laid out the boundaries of what fathers and mothers are allowed to do. Same thing for the state. The state is not allowed to do whatever it wants to do. The state can't come in and steal all your stuff. It can't come in and kill your children and rape your daughters. That's, that's, you know, government can't do that. Why, why can't a government do that? Because God's law doesn't allow it to do that. God has laid out the limits for what governments can do. And so, if the government, if, if God has said to us, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, that applies to governments as much as it applies to individuals. So what is just? What is right and wrong? It's what God has laid out in his laws as to what is right and wrong. There's so much confusion among evangelicals, Christians in our country, concerning the questions of social justice and racial justice and, and so forth. I don't know if that affects South Africa. If Christians are confused. As, you know, I'm for social justice. I'm for racial justice. Have you ever heard something of that? Well, I would say, yeah, I'm for justice as defined by God. When they say I'm for social justice or I'm for racial justice, what they're saying is, I am for Karl Marx's definitions of justice. That, that's what they're saying. It's just, you know, cloaked in another form, another set of words that someone came up with, and then they sold it to the churches. What we need to be saying is, no, no, we need to define what justice is. So is justice whatever the latest tyrant says justice is? Is it whatever Pharaoh says justice is? Is it whatever Herod says? Herod says, it is just to kill all the babies of Bethlehem. What do we say? Amen? Or do we say, now wait a minute, who defines justice? Does Karl Marx define justice? Does Herod define justice? No, that's why we have to go to God's word. And I realize the law of God has come upon hard times 
among the Christian churches. Sadly, it's got a bad rap. Nobody likes the law of God. They say sometimes it's opposed to grace, you know, that sort of thing. Again, confusion, theological confusion crept into the church. No, no, a true believer will say, I love the law of God. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's Paul in Romans 7. No, love God's good, it's right, just. So Paul des describes it in Romans chapter 7. The law of God is a standard by which we determine what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And to the extent that the church has abandoned the law of God and refuses to teach the law of God to their congregants, the church is undermining freedom, liberty. The church is doing a disservice to, 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 to the word of God. They're no longer discipling the people of God to obedience to everything Jesus has commanded in his word. They're not doing the Great Commission. They're not, they're not coming through to equip the man of God, the woman of God for every good work by drawing from uh, the Old and New Testament. Just not doing that. Just not equipping people. And that, I believe, is one of the fundamental reasons why the world is sinking into tyranny today. It's because the church is not doing its job to equip the people of God to understand what is just, what is unjust, uh, what is the definition of liberty, what is not the definition of, of liberty. Now, let me defend, defend the idea of liberty. First and foremost, Jesus wants us to be free. He says, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. What is he referring to? He's referring to the tyranny of sin. Is there in John chapter 8, he's referring to the idea that uh, the Pharisees and the Jews are uh, in bondage to sin. They didn't particularly want to believe that, uh, but that, that's the fundamental problem with us, and that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to set us free, and we get back to that in just a moment. But I believe the Bible does stand for political liberty. And we see that an example of the Hebrew midwives are pushing back on the Pharaoh's requirement to abort the children or commit infanticide. Uh, so we see it throughout Scripture. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think, is the classic text for defending the idea of freedom from the unnecessary servitude of men. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be free, says, use it rather. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. What is it saying here? He's saying is freedom from the unnecessary servitude of men, the tyrannical imposition of human domination over you is something that you need to to cast off if you can do it. So if you can always, I, I believe what Paul is saying, if you draw Philemon into it, if you draw other scriptures into it, you're going to find that Paul does not recommend some sort of violence, you know, uh, you know, shooting masters and that sort of thing. He's not talking about that kind of revolution. We, we, Paul does not want to see a reconstruction of society by revolution, by bloodshed but he wants to see it by regeneration. He wants to see it by uh, the, the, the way in which he was trying to work it through with Philemon. He's trying, trying to work it through so Onesimus could be set free. So we see that throughout Philemon. Um, but, but here, what he's saying, is, again, this is the thing I think we need to embrace here, 
is whether we are enslaved to, you know, a local tyrant, or whether we're enslaved to some small plantation, or whether we're enslaved to some large tyranny that has descended upon our great nations today, whatever it is, whatever kind of tyranny we're talking about, Paul, Paul is saying that if you can be made free, use it rather. There is a value. There, there is a, a good thing about not being in submission to a tyrannical lord over you. Liberty from political or economic slavery is a preferred value. And, and yet, how do we do this? Our founders would say something like, either you'll be governed by God or by God you'll be governed. Have you ever heard that expression? Anybody ever hear that expression just out of curiosity? Raise your hand if you have. I'm not. Oh, okay, one or two. Probably if you heard me speak before, you might have heard me say that. Either you'll be governed by God, or by God you'll be governed. What does that mean? Well, what it means is either you'll be governed by God's law, self-governed. Either you'll be governed by the commandments of God in your own personal life. Or, by God's providence, he will tyrannize you. He'll make sure that you'll be tyrannized. And it will be, it will be horrible, and your life will be horrible by the tyranny of man on you or on your country. And see, this is the history of our country. What we've seen over the last hundred years is as governments have increased the take of income from 8% of the GNI to 50-60% gross national income, that is, the tyranny in America is about seven times worse than it was 100 years ago. But by that particular metric, I mean, it's the easiest metric to use because it's just saying this is the size of government as a percentage of the overall economy or as a percentage of your life. This is, this is the percentage of your life that government is governing. Roughly 50 to 60% of your life is being governed by governments up from 8% 100 years ago. And that's pretty much every nation around the world. Now, why is that? Largely because, largely because the percentage of children born without fathers, that is, the increase in fornication and other things, and breakdown of marriage and all of this, has, has increased at the same rate, almost exactly the same rate. There were 6% of children born without fathers in 1960, 1% at the turn of the century. Today, 57% of children born to women under 30 years of age are born out of wedlock in my nation. So what does that mean? That means we've seen a tenfold increase in immorality, in the lack of self-government, in, in the average person's life in our country, at the same time that governments have increased their force and their control over every aspect of people's lives. So you have an increase in immorality at the same time you have an increase in tyranny and so here's what our, nation, our founders would say. Either you'll be governed by God or by God you'll be governed. The Bible also says, for the transgression of the people, many are the princes thereof. So, so how do you fix the problem? That's my question. I've got an idea. Why don't I just get elected as governor or as president of this country and I'll fix it over the next four years. You see how that's not going to work, right? immediately you're going to say, well, that's not going to work. As long as you have 57% of children born outside of wedlock, 
up from 6% in 1960, and you think you can waltz in to Washington, D.C., or Pretoria or anywhere else, and fix the problem in the next four years, that ain't happening. Why? Well, because somebody's going to have to get saved. Right? So we, we're always going to come back to the gospel, aren't we? That the only way in which we are going to see uh, uh, liberty coming back is if the Son will set them free, then they will be free indeed. So without the gospel, without a reviving of the nation, uh, there's just no hope for liberty anywhere in the world today. So I guess what we're saying is it's the gospel or bust. It's either people are going to get saved, either there will be a revival in this nation, or it's over. Isn't that where we come back to over and over again in our discussions? Either we're going to have a revival, or it's over. The story of Western civilization, liberties, I think is the best story ever. It's just thrilling to see what God has done. And my point is, is that if he's done it before, he'll do it again. Should Jesus tarry? I don't know where we are eschatologically. I, I, I don't even attempt to, uh, to identify uh, where, where we are in eschatology. I mean, I, I would, you know, I, I play around with there's a 50% chance of this or a 50% chance of that, so forth. So, you know, again, I don't do windows and I don't do the future. But, uh, but what we've seen is that that Jesus has done an amazing thing throughout history. And it began in the first centuries, where by God's grace, slavery was overcome. By the work of Augustine, Patrick of Ireland, others were able to back off the slave-based economies. It was a beautiful thing. By the time you get to 1100 AD, uh, Anselm of Canterbury uh, put the final kibosh on the slave trade in the, in the English Isles. So there was, but the history of, of freedom came on. But then we have the centralization of power that comes through the Pope. And power was, was traded off from the Pope to the Prince to the people between AD 1000 and the present day. So it's one way you can see the rise in tyranny. So the battle against tyrants occurs first with the Pope. The Pope is attempting to centralize power in Rome and then control the, the, the princes, the kings throughout Europe. And then with Henry VIII, the power is transferred from the Pope to the Prince. We begin to see the kings gaining a fair amount of control in the 1600s, from about well, 1540 up into the 1700s for about 150 years, the power shifts to the Prince. And then finally the power shifts to the people. And that is with modern democracies. The modern democracy has become the most tyrannical of all much more tyrannical than anything the popes and the princes ever did in the earlier centuries. So, so in the providence of God, God uses men and sometimes women as well, Deborahs, Hannahs, etc., very key moments in history. One of the greatest exemplars of faith and courage, as far as I'm concerned, was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe against the tyranny in Rome. John Wycliffe is roughly 1360. He graduates from college. And the bubonic plague hit about the same year. He wrote a book called The End of the Age. He believed it was the end of the world. Things were so bad. Think about a third of Europe wiped out by the bubonic plague. Think about nuclear war 
coming upon most of our nations, our big cities across the world, killing off a third to one half of the world's population within 10 years from now. Imagine something like that happening. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I, it's impossible that any kind of biological disease could come out of the Wuhan laboratories, I understand. You know, we, we can't believe that man could do anything that evil. Oh, wait, maybe he can. Um, so, by God's providence, God shook the world, killed off a third of the world's population with the bubonic plague. And John Wycliffe was rather discouraged. He wrote a book called The End of the Age. That was over. But it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. And God used one man. And, and as I see it, John Wycliffe was one man against the world. I don't know anybody who stood with John Wycliffe. Nobody. Now, at first, he called the Pope the Antichrist. That wasn't popular in 1360. But, uh, but then, but then he, he went on and he attacked the doctrine of transubstantiation. And that pretty much ended his career. Of course, he died before they could get to him. And then they dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered his ashes through the rivers. And you know the story. But as I see it, John Wycliffe was one man against the world. He's one man against all this powerful empire. One man against the Pope and all of the control the Pope had over the known world, over the European, Western world at the time. And, uh, and yet, uh, tremendous things began to occur uh, throughout this period of time. And it happened by way of just a handful. We read about the Swiss battle for freedom with William Tell. Remember the apple on the head. Uh, I tell the entire story of William Tell in the book, The Story of Freedom, very very good. And then you have the, 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 the Magna Carta that came about in 1215 AD. And then about 75 years later, uh, the Scottish are pushing back against the Brits. Uh, the British are getting to be fairly strong. They're trying to gain a little bit of control over Scotland, over the English Isles. And uh, William Wallace, Braveheart of Scotland, many of you know of that story, uh, pushed back pretty hard. And then he was drawn and quartered, as you know, as he was they were holding the psalm book in front of him and they, they, uh, they took out his intestines and you know, the rest of the story. He was, he was, uh, he was killed uh, by the King of England. But then it was Robert the Bruce that picked up the, the banner from there. And most people haven't heard of the story of Robert the Bruce, but really a tremendous story of a man who was basically all by himself. At one point he lost all of his support. He was the rightful King of Scotland. Um, but he had lost his support, and his back was against the wall. At one point, he was wandering across the highlands of Scotland, came upon a widow's house, and he said, could I have a little room and board here tonight? And the widow said, I only afford any assistance to the followers of the rightful king of Scotland, Robert the Bruce. He said, I am that man. She said, you're the king of Scotland. Where are your men? He says, I have none. She says, I have three sons. So, so again, freedom was just barely uh, a possibility at that point. The idea that Scotland could, and, and of course the tyranny was so severe against uh, the Scottish uh, that was coming through England at the time. And then Bannockburn, the, the Battle of Bannockburn is the battle for freedom and this secured the independence of Scotland for the next two, two to three hundred years. It was a significant battle. But Robert the Bruce was able to pull together a couple thousand against the 20,000 coming up from England. And you remember the English king was up on yonder hill at Bannockburn and 
He sees the, the Scots approaching. They had just heard two sermons preached from the book of Isaiah, and they were, they were marching out, and then suddenly they fell on their faces uh, there on the ground. And the king of England says to his assistants, Look, they plead for mercy. And his assistant said, Not from you, sir. And you, knew, you know how that battle went, don't you? They won that battle by the grace of God. And then we have way in the silent about 50, 80 years later, and, and it was uh, the Scottish Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Arbroath that affected our Declaration of Independence some 300 years later. But then you come to the 1540s when uh, the Holy Roman Emperor from Spain was controlling uh, the Netherlands. And, and uh, it was this man named William of Orange had been raised in the household of the Emperor Philip down in uh, the Netherlands for a number of years, and then he became the stockholder of Holland. And he was on a hunting venture with the King of France. You should know these stories. These are the most phenomenal stories in all of human history. He's on a, a hunt with the King of France. The King of France uh, just spoke to Philip, the Emperor, and he said that he's bringing an inquisition into the Netherlands is twice as bad as anything they ever experienced in the Spanish Inquisition. He's going to bring a slaughter to all the Reformed, all the Protestants, uh, man, woman, and child, entire families will be burned at the stake. It's the most horrific thing I think we've ever read of in all of Christian history. Uh, the kind of tyranny that Philip brought in the Netherlands, shameful, just the most horrific, frightening expression of tyranny you could ever imagine. And this is what was shared with, uh, with William of Orange. And, uh, and we read that as he heard what the emperor was going to do to the people of the Netherlands, William was silent. And that's why he's referred to as William the Silent in history. And he, he swore in his heart at that moment. He didn't say anything to the king of France. He swore in his heart that he would wipe the Spanish vermin off the plains of the Netherlands. It was the last thing he ever did to save the lives of his precious people. And he's the only person I know that gave up everything, absolutely everything. The only political leader that gave up everything. He gave up his honors, he gave up his lands, he gave up his money. He tried to fight off the Spanish as best as he possibly could. He lost three of his brothers. He lost his son, his son was kidnapped by the emperor in Spain, he lost a wife, I think his second wife as well. He lost everything for the cause of liberty. And then finally, he lost his life. The emperor put a contract out of his life and the second assassin was successful and, and, and shot him on a Sunday morning. There he was lying in a pool of blood and his, his sister comes up to him and says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? And he said yes, and he died. But not before he had secured liberty for the Dutch. It's the most beautiful story of liberty in all of history. And you need to read the story. He secured that liberty by a declaration of independence. And of course, it all happened in Leiden, shortly before he was assassinated. It all happened in Leiden, where he was, he was doing everything he could to keep the Dutch alive. And uh, they were praying and praying and praying. And the, the, eventually the waters came in you know, at the right moment. And, and overwhelmed the dikes and then flooded out the Spanish armies 
And that was the end of the Spanish involvement. And here's, here's the most significant thing that I want, I want to leave you with tonight, is that this is about 1580 when the, the Dutch obtained their independence uh, from Spain. And, uh, and then you know the rest of, of, his, of, of history where this was a blessing upon the Dutch. Um, the Dutch have made their mistakes in, in the past, as Americans have as well, but God had mercy upon that people. And it was an amazing thing. But, but about 20 years later, okay, what's happening 20 years later? Put it all together, put all these historical pieces together because history is very well connected. God is providentially uh, sewing a fabric and, and putting a, a series of events together and it all makes sense. Starting to see how things work out as you connect these events. Uh, 20 years later, there's a group of people a little bit further north in the Netherlands, a place called England, and they're called pilgrims. And three of their men wrote a book about church government, and they were hung by Queen Elizabeth for writing a book. Now, typically, you shouldn't be hung for writing a book. Well, this is the kind of tyranny that uh, Queen Elizabeth was placing upon the pilgrims. Well, the pilgrims left. They left England. In fact, they actually left three times. They tried to leave three times. They kept getting captured and put back into prison. Finally, they left and they wound up in the Netherlands, and they wound up in Leiden, the place in which the final battle occurred against the Dutch on account of the Spanish and their inquisition. So here's the point I wanna make, is that the worst place on earth in 1570, the worst place, the worst hellhole on earth, the place no, no Christian would ever wanna be, you would never wanna raise your children there because you all would have been burned at the stake altogether. It was the worst hellhole on earth became the best place and the safest place within 25 years because of one man who gave it all. See, that's, that's the way history works its way out. God brings us right down to the Red Sea where there appears to be no possibility for, for anybody to survive. That the tyrant's coming down hard on them and yet one man raises the rod and says, watch this. And God comes in and he does a mighty work and delivers his people. And that kind of thing happens over and over again. So here's my point is, yes, there are times at which it appears that liberty is on a very thin thread. There's perhaps no possibility for us to ever regain anything of freedom for our nations today. It's, it's for the, that, that small minority to still believe in God to still take the stand and believe that God can come, God can bring down the enemy, and Jesus has brought his enemies under his footstool before, and he will do it again and again and again. The devil doesn't give up easily. The desperate straits to which people are reduced is pretty extraordinary, but again, one person is raised up by God to stand against the world, and then there's breakthrough. God comes through for us. And this has happened over and over again in human history. This is the grandest story, I think, in all of human history. It goes back to the Red Sea, and then we see it happening at Calvary, and we see it throughout Christian history as well. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Uh, there are times at which it does appear that we are outnumbered. But, uh, but God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I believe this has happened in some ways in our state as well. We live in one of the worst states in America. I do a, something called the Evil Index, in which I 
rate the states of the nations around the world. And uh, the worst state in America is Oregon. And the second worst state is my state, the state of Colorado. Uh, it's what we call very blue. It's a very blue state. But God has gone before us. We have done everything we can to fight for parental rights in our state. That is the right of parents to raise their children as they see fit, to homeschool their children, to make decisions about their health care requirements and so forth without the imposition of the state on us. And, uh, and by God's grace, he's gone before us and we've won every battle. I, I'm amazed. Our conservative brothers and sisters, those pro-lifers and others that are fighting the good fight, they lose every time. They lose their pro-life battles. We've lost every gun battle. We've lost um, the family uh, values battles in relation to LGBTQ, whatever. We've lost every battle. We lose the battles relating to conservatism and money, etc. But the only battles that we win consistently in our state right now are parental rights battles. And we're always exempted as homeschoolers. Uh, that's happened, I would say, at least 20 to 25 times over a period of 25 to 30 years. And I'm so thankful for that. My encouragement is that we fight for what we call islands of freedom. God has exempted homeschoolers in our country. He exempts Christians sometimes from, uh, from the socialist medical requirements. Uh, we've seen that happen a number of times. The U.S. Supreme Court has protected the island of education, the island of homeschooling for us uh, a number of times. I'm just amazed at how God has gone before us. And I think when it comes to family freedoms, uh, God has laid out some responsibilities for parents to raise their children, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's close to his heart. He wants us to, to make decisions for our own children. But now, if we take the responsibilities, we also need the rights to do so. Remember one time I was arguing against the compulsory attendance law that was uh, being imposed and it was, there was additional requirements that were added. And so the governor of the state actually exempted us at that point, exempted only homeschoolers, wouldn't exempt anybody else. Uh, and the homeschoolers were there at the committee meeting arguing the case. And I stepped up to the microphone and I said, I'm here to oppose uh, this additional requirement that is going to break down family rights, parental rights in the state. And the chairwoman looked at me and said, are you a homeschooler? I said, yes, I am, ma'am. And she said, we've already exempted you. The governor has agreed to exempt you from this legislation. I said, I'm here for the rest of the parents in Colorado, for private schools, public schools. She says, they're not here. Sit down. Now, there, there, there are the pilgrims today that are arguing against state involvement in the family. The pilgrims of the 17th century are arguing against state involvement in the church. And I know that there are the masses saying, who cares if the state appoints your pastors? Who cares if the state says your pastors need to wear these garments or light these candles? But the the pilgrims argued against that on the principle of it, that governments have no right to control the church. And these were the foundations of our nation so many years ago. Well, today, I think the battle is not so much government control of the church as it is governments controlling of the family. 
And we are the modern pilgrims. We are the modern freedom fighters. We are those that are doing the best to keep governments out of the family jurisdiction. And I, I do believe this will be critical for sustaining the faith in the years to come. Why? Because governments have used their power, their control, their money to impose a certain worldview, an evolutionary, naturalistic, materialist, atheistic worldview, and a nihilistic form of ethics upon our children through indoctrinating them into LGBTQ, transgender, this or that. That's come by means of government control, government funding. Governments have the mud touch. What they touch turns to mud. The same thing happens in the area of education. The first thing that they do is they gain control and funding over it. And then what do they do next? They pervert it. And that's what's happening to education in our country and yours as well. So my encouragement is fight hard for an island of freedom. You may not gain it much for your public schools, but you may be able to gain it for the homeschools. Do what you can to exempt your children from the system. I believe this is critical for the survival of faith and family and freedom for the years to come. I think the only shot we have right now for any level of freedom is to gain some control over our children's education and make those calls for ourselves. And if by God's grace our children are exempted from the, from the propaganda program and the, the brainwashing that happens in the public schools, we may be able to retain something of a generational faith among our children. And if our children will homeschool, if our children will exempt their children from these systems, they'll unplug their children's brains from the matrix and, uh, and, and bring a distinctively Christian worldview in their educational program over a period of four, five, or six generations, we may be able to take the mainland sometime in the future. So again, the strategy as I see it is embrace whatever freedom you can get. If you can carve out a little bit of freedom, an island of freedom somewhere, especially in the realm of, of parental rights, uh, family rights, educating your own children as you see fit, then perhaps we may be able to gain a, a little bit more freedom or a significant amount of freedom sometime in the future, whether it be for South Africa or for our nation. So I'll end there. It's just encourage you that God has in his providence opened up opportunities for us. There's only two or three nations that have outlawed homeschooling that I know of. Russia hasn't. We've been there, what, six or seven times with conferences. We were the ones that that formed the first homeschooling conferences in St. Petersburg. Um, but it's Germany and, and Sweden that have shut down homeschooling almost entirely. So two nations, I don't have any hope for them at this point. But every other nation that I know of around the world, including China, there's some opportunities for homeschooling children. In fact, the, the Chinese Christians are translating our curriculum into Mandarin and using that for their children. Same thing's happening in Vietnam right now. The Vietnamese are translating our curriculum into Vietnamese so they can give their children a distinctively Christian education. So I believe this is the one shot we have for salvaging freedom in the years to come. There may be a few others. I know at least in our country we have Christian medical sharing where we exempt ourselves from what we call Obamacare, where we have insurance programs and socialist medicine programs that require uh, Christians to fund abortions. And uh, by, by God's grace, a friend of mine 
got my idea of Islands of Freedom in the early 1990s, and he formed an organization called Samaritan Ministries, and they have 300,000 families on this Christian medical sharing program. There's about two or three other programs. It could be as many as a half a million Christian families in America signed up to Christian medical sharing. And uh, not only are we exempting ourselves from funding abortions, which is great, and abortifacients, but we're also uh, exempting ourselves from extremely high premiums. And our family has saved about $450,000 in insurance premiums because we use Christian medical sharing ministries. And that's enough to pay off you know, about two houses in America. We could you know, literally free and clear pay off two houses by the amount of insurance premiums we have saved uh, over the last 25 years because we've used Christian medical sharing. We're taking full advantage of these islands of freedom. We don't have to sign up for socialist medicine. We don't have to clink on the, the handcuffs and restrict ourselves to certain forms of medical care or fund abortions, these sorts of things. We've taken full advantage of islands of freedom. We've carved out islands of freedom uh, in the area of medical. We've carved out islands of freedom in the area of education. And uh, I believe that as Christians are, are, have a desire for freedom, they have a desire to embrace the God-given responsibilities they have, uh, for their own family's welfare, health care, education, etc. As we do that, I believe that God will give you the rights. He will carve out those islands of freedom and you can take full advantage of them uh, in, in your generation. In fact, I was talking to some families who are homeschooling this country and, and it turns out that there's, there's a huge incompetence on the part of the bureaucracy apparently in South Africa to enforce uh, your laws, praise God, praise God for incompetence, you know, um, and that itself may form something of an island of freedom. I'm just saying where you have an island of freedom, use it rather. It's precisely the principle that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 7. If you can be free, free from what? Free from the unnecessary servitude to governments, free from debt. Okay, let's throw in debt, because okay, the Debt or a servant to the lender, free from debt, free from other forms of unnecessary servitude. If you can't be free from the unnecessary servitude of men, the word of God says use it rather. But why? Paul says, here's the reason. You are bought with a price. What is that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is you're bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you believe there's any value to the blood of Jesus Christ, you're bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. This itself should be enough to motivate you to seek freedom. Freedom from these tyrants. Freedom from the unnecessary servitude of men. You're bought with a price. The price is the blood of the Son of God. Paul's pretty intense at that point. If you're bought with a price, the blood, the infinite value, the blood of the Son of God himself, he says, be not the servants of men. Seek to be free. That's the message we get from 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23. I encourage you to meditate on that. But first and foremost, I, mean, I want to leave you again with this. That if the Son will make you free, if Jesus will make you free, you will be free indeed. Free from sin, first and foremost. Free from addictions. Free from the immoral restraints and constraints that sin brings to your life. That's first and foremost. And once we're free from the, those sinful tendencies, God gives us the blessing of liberty. He sets us free from the tyrannical impositions of, of, of human institutions. 
on us. So this is the message we receive from Scripture. Hopefully you'll be able to celebrate that freedom. It's beautiful. Freedom from tyrants. Freedom from that slavery. God wants us to be free. He wants us to enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. And it's true that institutions oftentimes counter that, and that's what the church did during the time of the Reformation. The Pope was tyrannizing the people of God, and that's what the tyrants are doing to us now by way of the civil magistrate. So may God bring back a vision for liberty, first a vision for liberty, perhaps we could be free. Perhaps we could enjoy more of the freedom that Jesus brings to us. Freedom from sin and freedom from the unnecessary restraints and constraints placed upon us by human institutions. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, open our eyes to this. Without a vision, the people perish. But he who keeps your word, happy is he. Father, help us to understand your will, your word. Renew our minds. Help us to gain a vision for something different, something better. The freedom that we have in Jesus. Oh God, we live in a world of tyranny and sin. Set us free, God. Set us free so that we can understand it and live it, experience it, and rejoice. Rejoice in it. We can at one point be on the hallelujah side of the Red Sea and see that you have overcome our enemies. You have overcome the tyrants. And you have set your people free. Father, that we would know it as, and that we would celebrate it, rejoice in it, every day, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate your attention. Okay, let's, uh, let's open it up. Questions, history, um, yes, go ahead. You, you, you made the point that Paul doesn't say we must um, and uh, violent, like violent revolution, yeah. sort of thing, yeah. but self-defense is your yeah, yeah, yeah. for that. Yeah. And, and, and there's a difference. There's a difference between revolution and appropriate defense. You know, and we can also talk about lower magistrates in the scriptures. The lower magistrates uh, have been useful to defend from higher magistrates. Uh, I think of the example of Obadiah who defended the prophets from Ahab, things like that. So there are most definitely instances in which that can happen. Um, so, but I think you just have to bring the corpus of Scripture. Okay, so what does Scripture say about, you know, um, defending ourselves in a violent way? Um, at this point, we have options in terms of our... Uh, islands of freedom, but we also have options in terms of moving around. That's another option that people have. And I know sometimes, you know, people move to New Zealand, turns out New Zealand isn't better than South Africa, you know, so we see that too. Uh, so there is the flee to another city, and there is at points uh, violent uh, opposition, which, which can occur, as I see it, under the rubric of lower magistrates, and we've, we've seen that throughout history. So... And there's always opposing unjust and ungodly mm -hmm. laws. Yeah. The first thing you have to determine is whether or not the law is unlawful as determined by the law of God. The second thing you have to determine is whether or not the law itself is forcing you to disobey God's law. So those are two different <coughs> questions you have to ask yourself. Um, I think, and you touched on briefly, 
the word freedom, I think from a human and Christian sense, is distorted. And perhaps it is, yes. So, I mean, what is, what is freedom? Is it freedom to practice sinful ways? Or freedom as in free to practice God's ways? That's mean, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's distorted. And I just think that if more people actually knew what freedom meant, perhaps we would actually, and people actually unite them. Christians, unfortunately, are scattered. I mean, they are believing ones, they are those mm -hmm. who take the side with the humanists, all of that, mm -hmm. you know. If people were just more organized with the way they do things and that, perhaps we would be on our way to claiming the mainland already. That's just what I think. Well, the, I mean, first, the first thing Christians have to do is determine what's the standard. We're going to use to determine what is right and wrong. And if it's not the word of God, then they're all messed up. There's no possibility of unity. There's no possibility that they're going to come down to the right conclusion, a clear answer as to what is uh, right and wrong, what and constitutes true freedom and what constitutes uh, true slavery. And also, right. you touched base on the Scot on the Scottish king, where you know he was all alone. You know, eventually he was killed. These days, it's not physical death. I mean, a person's reputation is everything. I mean, although Jesus did say, drop everything and follow me, but I mean, in this day and age, to actually stand alone, to lose everything that one took a lifetime up to build, it doesn't come easy. And it also holds a person hostage. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I agree. So, I agree. Yep. Digital reputation or something like that is essentially the same thing. I mean, people need to actually... And, and probably the most severe form of tyranny that's happening in our nation today, or one of them, uh, certainly the killing of innocent babies yeah. is, is way up there, but also the killing of a child's soul in the public schools by the wrong view of ethics, the wrong view of origins the wrong view of everything, uh, that is as severe. We've never had a period of time in history that I know of. We, we've, we've had kings kill babies all the way back to Bethlehem, right? With Herod and then the Pharaoh. Uh, the kings have had this bad habit of killing babies for a very long time. I think that's because it's demonic, it's satanic. But in this day and age, what they're doing is killing the souls of our children by forcing the wrong worldview or wrong ideology into our children's minds. And so that to me is a significant. So the children that make it out of the womb, they're going to do their utmost to be sure those children go to hell. That's their commitment. So as Christian parents, I think it's time to wake up and realize we're in a battle. And Jesus said, if anybody stumbles one of these little ones and believes in me, it'd be better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and be drowned at the bottom of the sea. Very severe language. Uh, but that means that parents are responsible before God to defend their children from bad worldviews and bad indoctrination systems. And so that's why I'm here in South Africa. This is basically the line. I really encourage parents to make these decisions. Be very thoughtful. And by the way, it's not just schools. It's also popular culture, Disney, others that are coming on strong. And I don't believe it's just, you know, human things. We're not wrestling just against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers that have gained a lot of control over educational institutions. 
and cultural institutions. Unlike anything, this wasn't happening in the 1880s. You didn't have Disney in the 1880s infecting 500 billion million children in the world. You know, you didn't have uh, public schools in 1740 imposing LGBTQ values and transgendering the seven-year-olds in 1730. I mean, think about it, right? Where are we? Wake up, moms and dads. This is crazy. Let's, let's realize what is happening with these power centers and the level of control they're imposing upon the minds and souls of billions of children around the globe today. Um, so yes, go ahead. One of the tools that I see is, is the, the corporate capture, which is very important. I mean, that's, that's what drives everybody in this you know, planet these days, is getting up really going, driving to where you can see the traffic. And those people that are against us control the, the corporate, the world's economy, the, the drive of, so we say, what does freedom look like? So uh, somehow we have to unpack that juggernaut, that massive beast thing, whatever it is. And uh, our freedom is going to be a, a better economic system somehow. It's going to be. Because that's what, you know, we're losing a, a huge battle. In, you know, like a, uh, I think a great way is, is like to say, for islands pockets, but that can also be networking work and business and uh, you know stopping supporting these giant chains actually we shouldn't even set foot in any of the businesses that are under famous brands because that's Woolworths who just had a display of transgender clothing I heard about that mm -hmm. that should never be forgiven yeah mm -hmm. I mean, Christianity is about forgiveness mm -hmm. but I'm sorry no that one I'm not going to let it slide mm -hmm. yeah, but then what people do is they go and they took it down so now I'm going back to shop there and we have to really be so disciplined. It's very hard because then you start to see, wow, it doesn't matter if you don't shop there because the next shop is owned by famous brands or whoever it is. Um, In America, it's getting worse and worse. Of the Fortune 500 companies, the 500 largest companies in America, there's maybe 10 that haven't signed up to the agenda. Exactly. Maybe 10. So, how, so what were the laws in the past that, that prevented that? Or were there laws? Because those are the things that the average public like me don't actually really know where that could be breaking the laws that we had in the past to protect us from, because during the depression they had the antitrust laws and things like that. I don't know what happened and what transpired, but these are things worthy of. I, I think more, more and more uh, Christians in our country, your country, are thinking in terms of forming their own businesses. Very much so. Smaller businesses. Entrepreneurs. Yeah, as much as they can develop, like you say, islands of freedom in the context of the business world, well, and there are opportunities for that. It's a great because it is a strategy. It's it is. You're right. Yeah. In in the uh, homeschool environment, we uh, we sometimes dedicate an entire day of our conferences to what we call family economy. So we encourage development of family economies. Uh, for families to um, to consider ways in which they can develop their own economy as the homeschool is just a portion of the entire family vision or family economy they bring about. The word economy actually comes from oikonomia, which is uh, oikos is family, nomia is law or vision. 
economics is the law of the family, the vision of the family. Basic economic unit is not the individuals, the family coming together as a team. That's the way it was for 5,950 years until everything was corporatized. So, so that's the kind of message that we bring to our homeschool conferences. That's just one part of it. The last uh, question is just, was the, the uh, pursuit of happiness that, you know, that's an idea in your constitution, I think it is. Wasn't that previously property? It was property, right. So that is a right. thing. Life, liberty, and property, right. So that, the the rights to life, liberty, and property. It was, I think, Thomas Jefferson that threw in the pursuit of happiness. Wow. But, but it was historically seen as life, liberty, and property, right. And uh, that's why property taxation is probably the most onerous form of taxation. Uh, property taxation undermines the right of the individual to own property. Yeah. Can you explain a bit more about that medical aid? Uh, um, oh, the Christian medical yeah. sharing, yeah. Well, what, the way it works is that we, uh, we sign up and uh, we, uh, we, we put it through the pastor of the church. The pastor has to sign off uh, on the family that they attend church three out of four times uh, they don't smoke or drink, or they don't smoke, or maybe they just drink moderately. There's different standards that they lay out, um, but it, the pastor has to sign it, and uh, and so that the, when they sign that, that weeds out actually a lot of the problems that uh, health health issues that are tied in. Uh, so there's a spiritual accountability form that's signed, and then that's sent in, and then once a month. We'll hear about a family has a pregnancy and we write a $345 check and so does 25 other people. And that covers that pregnancy, that covers that birth of the child. And uh, my wife fell out of the, the garage and had a brain injury actually. And uh, that cost us 30 or $40,000. Uh, we probably got, you know, 60 or 70 checks uh, in the mail and uh, that paid for the bills. So, uh, so that's how it works. And then, then once a year, you write a straight $200 check as an administrative fee to the organization, and they use that six or $8 million to administrate the entire program. So again, it saves us about 75% of what would ordinarily be our insurance premiums. So I mean, it's an example of that island of freedom, families coming together, Christians coming together as the Good Samaritans, and it's sort of like the Amish idea of building the barn together um, but, but it is outrageously popular among Christians in my country. Um, highly recommended that you find ways to develop these islands. Now, I don't know if that's exactly the approach you would want to take here in South Africa, but uh, it is just, there's a hundred reasons why it's a better idea. Yeah, yeah, right, right, it is, right. In this country as well. So, so think ahead. Think in terms of islands of freedom you could form here. Yes, go ahead. Um, the communists are not very popular under the Christians because they don't have the most fantastic ideology. But don't we, can't we learn from them when it comes to strategy? Because they, they're very good at penetrating all kinds of organizations and then influencing society through that. So by just being observant, um, what is that? No, because to serve in community organizations, you can start influencing society. And that is why communism is so powerful. 
because nobody believes in their ideology, not even themselves, but they they are able to implement their ideology on society. <coughs> South Africa is a wonderful example. The South, the South African Communist Party has got almost no support, but they've got a number of ministers that get into those positions by serving other political parties. It's a challenge as to how to best influence society. I think that's the question that we all have to face. And I don't know how it works here in South Africa, but my guess is the best way to influence the minds and the hearts of a society is by media. That's a big one in our country, media. Um, and also by schools, institutions, universities. Uh, those are the two big ones, as I see it. Um, so that's what we're trying to do in our country. So as, as much as you can influence, as much as you can make your way into radio, television, as much as you can make your way into schools, universities, educational programs. Personally, I think homeschooling is a great way, largely because a lot of people are pretty upset with the public schools. And there's a large percentage of people. Actually, during COVID, we, we went to about 100% were homeschooling for a period of time. And uh, so they were listening increasingly to Christians uh, because we were the ones who had so much you know, experience with it. Anyway, I, I would say those two things. Community groups, yes. Political parties, certainly. And we have lots of folks that volunteer for that. But one of the challenges that we're up against is the monolith of the public schools. That's just, as, as far as they've got control, as far as they've got an agenda, as far as they control such a large percentage of the population, it's still a biggie. Uh, do I think that someday we're going to be successful? I think so, at some point. But right now we're definitely in the minority. See, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. So now, you know, salt preserves. If you, if you want to preserve meat or fish, you make biltong. You know, it preserves. It stops going rotten. So, so we're supposed to preserve society. In, in other words, to this decay that we see around us, we've got to try and, and preserve. And we've also got to be the light. Now, we all know this with ESCOM, the Physical darkness is a sign of the spirit, spiritual darkness in this country. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, you can, I, I mean, they've, they've stolen so much that we can't even keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. So it is, a, it is a sign of a deeper spiritual darkness. Um, but, but, you know, we, we can complain about the dark, but if you light a candle in the dark, that light shines. And we each carry the light of Jesus Christ. So, you know, yeah, there's all the, dark, the, I mean, we see the tsunami of evil coming at us, but what are we going to do? Are we going to light a candle? Are we going to be the salt? Are we going to try and preserve what, you know, what we can, like you say, to, to influence? The problem is, is that they've got the, you know, the mainstream media is in their pockets, the big corporations, is, you know, they've got all of that. Um, but they haven't got our kids unless we give our kids to them. You know, like you say, we can, we, there, there are systems, you can homeschool your kids, get them out of the system, you know, out of the, the system. I mean, if you see that, that um, you know, or if, if you're a parent and, and your kid is in the, uh, the government system, 
at least go to the parent-teachers meetings and say, we want prayer in our schools. Because, you know, people keep on saying, oh, we're a secular country. No, we're not a secular country. We have freedom of religion. But we only have freedom of religion while we care about it. You know, people say, oh, but they've taken uh, prayer out of, out of the schools. They've taken prayer out of the schools where the parents don't care about prayer. But where the parents say, we want prayer in the schools. We want Bible reading in the schools. And they go to the meetings and they insist on it. We have freedom of religion. But how much do people care about it? And they will keep on saying we're a secular country. They want us to believe we're a secular country. But we still have that freedom of religion. We can go into hospitals and pray for people. The fact is, do we want to be the salt and the light? Or do we want to say, I don't, I don't care? There's, you know, you talk about pro-life. There, there are, there's, as, I mean, Christians will generally say, yeah, we're pro-life. But not like you notice. And so we've had a million babies aborted in this country since abortion on demand. Because when we have a, a life chain, um, which is once a year, we get maybe 100 people come. And that's to have a prayer meeting, to hold placards, to say abortion is murder, to give out tracts to the public, to pray. You see, the church, we are all a church, but we have to step up. We have to be counted. We have to, we, it's not enough to say we're pro-life. We've got to say it is unacceptable. We will do everything that we can to, to support women in crisis pregnancy. We, we're going to uh, go to uh, pro-life rallies. We're going to uh, talk to our member of parliament and say, listen, we're not going to vote for you if you're not pro-life. You know, we have to say so you, you work from from the bottom uh, up and from the top down. And that's what we've got to decide. We've got to do that. And where the culture has actually gone too far, like you say, then we say, okay, but we, we have islands and we build from there. It was very inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let me add one more thing. Um, because this is a good discussion. So much as a strategy too. So just be careful. We don't, we don't condemn a brother or sister that's doing something else than we are doing in terms of being salt and light. Um, but I do think it is important to go after those those severe, more severe concerns in our society, like abortion. I think that would be something that that we want to be sure that the church is standing up for. And, and it's not all political. What we've noticed is some of our members will stand on street corners on occasion and just hold up pro-life signs, not, not necessarily in front of an abortion clinic, but just anywhere. Just say, we love your babies, um, you know, uh, just simple things, simple statements, um, but just being a light in the community. And I, I do believe that if more churches would do that, I think our church is the only church in our whole community that does that um, out of maybe a hundred churches or something like that. Our church is probably the only church that does it. But I do think that just a few light bulbs, you know, it doesn't take many. Uh, but if you could just get a few more light bulbs on issues like that, it would make a difference. Here's one more example is we had 
an instance in which uh, some witchcraft was coming into our little community. And so we prayed about that. We asked God to take that away and it was gone within a week. But just to be aware of these dark influences and, and you know, just continuing to press against it. Just be faithful. Push against it. We can't, we can't overcome everything, but we can take on some things and, and be that salt and light that God has called us to be.